The world is a complex place filled with good and evil and almost everything in between. The challenge of navigating this is that we are all tempted by something that we want, but ultimately will be our undoing. Christians frame this battle between God and Satan with humans caught in the struggle to choose. What makes this even more difficult, it is not simply a matter of choice, but also of action. To avoid sin, we must resist its lure, but most, if not all, can without help. This is where faith provides solace, and in the final judgment, salvation. Tonight we are joined by two gentlemen who have dedicated the search for what is good in the form of the excellent Stone Choir podcast, which explores many of these fundamental issues and provides a guide to those who have sought a light in these dark times. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time dealing. The the Hello and welcome back to the myth of the 20th century. Uh, today we, myself and Hans, are honored to be joined by two very special guests. Uh, one returning from a couple weeks ago, um, we had Woe from Stone Choir, but also his uh, co-host is now joining us, uh, Corey. Uh, so welcome to both of you and uh, for the first time, uh, Corey as well, and thank you for coming. Uh, I wanted to just kind of give a brief review of what we talked about last time, and then hopefully we can get into some new territory today. Uh, last time, you know, we just had sort of a free-form discussion with Woe, but the title of the show was on Christian nationalism. And I think what's interesting about having this dialogue between our show and their show is our show mainly talks about sort of the material, the, the technical, maybe the philosophical as well, but we're, we're not a religious show. And, you know, we, we don't claim to be experts in that department either. Uh, but I think we're very open to people who are scholarly in that pursuit because I certainly recognize the importance of having a, a spiritual life and recognizing that not everything is as simple as uh, two plus two and, and uh, you know, the mechanistic aspects of life. And so uh, what we talked about last time was kind of just from my perspective and Hans as well, just trying to learn about the Lutheran church, uh, which is where uh, these two gentlemen come from. And in particular, uh, the Missouri Synod and what had happened to them. Um, and then also I wanted to get into maybe what uh, what their show is about and why they're doing it to, to kind of review a little bit of that. But I think what's interesting about the connection between our two shows is I would say we're more on the, the nationalist side and they're perhaps more on the Christian side. But I think there is definitely some interplay there and it's important that we have a dialogue. And I wanted to expand upon that uh, today. And uh, today's tentative topic is the fight between good and evil, if you even believe in those things. 
I was having a conversation with a friend of the show about this actual uh, paradigm. And, you know, I put forward the argument that I don't necessarily think in terms of my strategy as the enemy is evil and I am good and therefore I will win. I try to be a little bit more objective about how I see things in terms of maybe there's a reason the enemy, good or evil, is winning. What can I learn from them? And that's not to say that I, I want to be on the side of evil or I want anyone to be on the side of evil. I certainly believe in good, if we can even define that. But it's hard sometimes to try to win a battle when you're focused on the morality, I would argue. And I would like to maybe get into that today as to does it even matter? And I, I would imagine you guys would argue it does. But then what do you do with that? And then how do you actually defeat evil? Um, so these are the types of questions I had. I'm sure Hans has some questions. But again, thank you for joining us, gentlemen. What can I say? Uh, it, it's an honor. Uh, a lot of uh, people on Twitter are recommending, you know, talking to you guys. So I'm, I'm humbled to try to convey some of the questions they might have. Uh, but mainly it's going to come from me and obviously from Hans as well. Um, so with that, good versus evil, what do you guys think? How do you know you're on the side of good, first of all? Maybe it's a good question. You can take that, Corey. Sure. Personally, I would start by advancing that it is actually properly basic, the concept of good. We all know what good is. I would actually expand that, as I believe many historical philosophers in the Western tradition would, to the transcendentals more generally, beauty, goodness, truth, whichever order you prefer, being in unity, of course, being the fourth and fifth traditional transcendentals, I would say that they are properly basic. We recognize good when we see it. And so it may start to sound like the Supreme Court justice, I know it when I see it. But to, in a sense, and to a degree, we all know that is true. There are things, you see them, you know what they are simply by seeing them. We know that it is good to rescue a child from drowning. We know that it is the opposite of good to go ahead and drown that child. We recognize beauty when we see beauty, unless we have become so hardened or so seared that we can no longer recognize these things, which one could potentially say of some of our enemies, they have become so hardened, they're incapable of recognizing beauty which incidentally I would say is possibly a proof for the existence of God, but that's a perhaps a side note. So good is, in essence, that which comports, from the Christian perspective at least, that which comports with God's will. And so we would say that is simply what good is. God being unitary, his attributes are not separate from his essence. He is his attributes. He is his essence. His essence is his attributes. God is beauty, goodness, and truth. And so that which is beautiful is also good. That which is true is good. And that which is beautiful is true. They're interchangeable in a way. We divide them up because our limitation as created beings means that we can conceive of these things only by dividing them and analyzing them in part. We cannot obviously, comprehend the fullness of the essence of God. He is infinite, we are finite. We can comprehend only finite things. And so that goodness is that which comports with God's will, God's design. And we can recognize that as created beings by looking to the other transcendentals 
how do we know what is good? Well, it's true and it's beautiful. If you find something that is both beautiful and true, you know that it is also good. And so you can look for one transcendental and you will find the others necessarily where you find any one. One of the episodes we did a couple months ago was on the subject of perfect hatred. And it goes into some more depth specifically on what Corey said earlier about God's will, because good from a Christian perspective, and I, I would argue fundamentally, I mean, one of the one of the basic questions of is a religion true and is Christianity the true religion is what is the source of stuff? And I think the problem that materialists inherently face is if you don't have a root underneath all of the material from which things like goodness and beauty are springing, how do you know? You know, it's 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 a question that people have always struggled with. But when in in the on the in the episode on perfect hatred, we went into love and hate also being aspects of good and evil, and so it's it's something that modern Christians, and that's practically an oxymoron at this point, Christians who are alive today who are kind of losing their way theologically are very fond of being terrified of hatred, per se. The idea that anything could be hated makes them feel like they're sinning. And the problem with that is that it's very clear in Scripture that there are things that God hates. And one of the definition of that, in essence, is God hates that which is contrary to his nature, which is contrary to his will, and loves the things that are according to his will. And so we as creatures, regardless of faith, have the imprint of God's image on our hearts such that we can all naturally recognize goodness and beauty. There's not I'm not, not, this isn't to suggest that man is tabula rasa, but in general, a newborn baby is going to tend not to be dangerously violent. They will be ignorant to some extent of, you know, the possibility of harm. But in general, certain behaviors tend to be learned and reinforced over time. And in a society where goodness is embraced, you will obviously reinforce just people behaving. And that's what we call morality and ethics. And I think that the key differentiator there, if there, when someone accepts that there is one, is that ethical can change over time. It can change with circumstance, whereas moral, because it's rooted beneath us, because it's coming from God, is inherently defined by what God considers to be good. And so we should, everyone should see that which is good and love it, that can be lost over time. And it's certainly we're seeing it today lost societally where things are getting uglier and uglier, you know, buildings and art and everything around us is being made ugly and we're being told that that's beautiful. Simultaneously, the things that actually were beautiful in the past are being torn down and destroyed. And we're being told that that's we're sweeping away the old, we're bringing in the new and there's nothing beautiful left in in your line of sight. If you walk around most cities and towns today, the only beautiful things you're likely to see are old ones. And, you know, that's, that's something we all suffer under. But I think that the fact that good and evil, you know, just are, are perceptible for, for us is a reflection of the fact that God is underneath 
as the model and as the producer of those things. And where we've lost our way as, as a civilization is not being able to differentiate and effectively calling evil good and good evil, which there's a Bible verse that explicitly condemns that. Well, one of the things that always struck me as strange is self-proclaimed Satanists, uh, for example, uh, seem to embrace the quote-unquote evil as a good thing. And we can get into all the sort of symbology as the uh, 666 is one away from 777, which is good luck and godly. And it's just this strange... I don't know if it's a cult or if it's, if it's to be taken more seriously, but I guess what it gets to that I recognize as a potential danger is to to other people who are not necessarily Satanists is the, the appeal of what Satan talks about, I think is pretty obvious to people, whether they know it or not. Um, It's basically falling into sin and it's, doing things that you might call fun, you might call enjoyable, but might be bad for you. Uh, So why do people go into that? Maybe it's as obvious as what I'm saying, or is it more complicated? Uh, I think some people might view it as a way to gain personal power. You know, you sell your soul. There was a strange interview Bob Dylan gave with somebody from 60 Minutes, and people were saying he was uh, basically admitting he had sold his soul to become a talented musician or at least a successful one. Um, what is the appeal of evil? If, if you've described God being against evil, why does people still want to do it? There are a few things that are necessary as groundwork for a Christian to answer the question of why evil today, notably has an appeal. One is the Christian doctrine, the theology of original sin. We are currently living in a fallen state because, of course, our original parent, Adam, fell. Notably, Adam fell. He was the federal head, and so all fell in Adam. We are now imperfect, and so we have the internal temptation in the flesh to sin. It's no longer just an external temptation. This is one of the notable differences between the temptation of Christ by Satan in the wilderness and the temptation that you and I feel. When we see a beautiful woman, we are not simply tempted by that the existence of an external temptation. For Christ, it would be wholly external, and so he can simply not be tempted. He can reject that. And so Satan's temptation was external. He was explicitly an external agent attempting to tempt Christ to do something. For us, there is the addition of the internal temptation because our nature is fallen and sinful. And so we have that desire internally to rebel. Now, we can suppress that to some degree. And as the Christian progresses in the Christian life, as sanctification progresses, we do get better at suppressing that desire to sin. But it never goes away in this life. We do not reach a state of perfection in this life. And so that's part of the reason that there is an appeal for sin. It's our fallen nature wants to sin. It wants to rebel because we are, by nature, rebels. But there is also, as you said, there is that appeal of it's pleasurable in the moment. 
no one is going to seriously argue, no serious Christian is going to argue that fornication isn't fun. Of course it's fun. It's deeply unwise. It's deeply unwise from the perspective of social ramifications, health ramifications to some degree, but it's also immoral. It's sinful. And so it is harmful not only to the body, but also to the soul. Sexual sins are actually sing singled out in Scripture as being harmful not only to the soul, because they separate from God, of course, but also harmful to the body, as we all know they are. But sin can be, in the moment, pleasurable or enjoyable or whatever it happens to be. If it did not have those aspects to it, no one would do it. There would be no reason to sin if it were just purely rebellion against God. There must be something else there. There must be some reason that obviously fallen reason of man can use to justify pursuing this. It's a wicked end, but it is an end. It's not a good end. It's not our true end. It's not in, in the sense of our original nature. It is not a proper end toward which we should direct ourselves, but we are at least directing ourselves towards something that has that nature of a proper end. And so control of one's life isn't necessarily an improper end. If you make it a paramount end, if you are willing to subvert higher and greater goods to it, then it becomes sinful. There's also another layer, though, when it comes to Satanism. First off, I would say we should divide Satanists into two groups. There are the ones who do it, they would say ironically, so the Reddit set primarily. They're going to say they're Satanists in an ironic way because, you know, Satan was the first rebel and so we're rebels as well, or they'll try to say that, well, Satan just wanted humankind to have knowledge, which is not true, but, you know, the father of lies. Then there's the other group. There are those who are actual Satanists. There are those who have decided that they are going to make their entire person simply comprised of rebellion against God. That is their essence. That is who they wish to be. It is who they become. Those are the real Satanists, and there are real Satanists. Now, they may be possessed or they may not be possessed. That's going to depend on the individual, I presume, and also, I presume, on Satan's plans, because Satan, of course, does have plans. The real Satanists are a very real threat. The ironic Satanists are more of an annoyance. However, they are dangerous to themselves and to those immediately around them. Because if you ironically invite in demons, well, you may very well still be inviting them in. And the demons are not going to care about the difference between ironically using some sort of black magic or seance, whatever it happens to be, and using it with the actual goal in mind of inviting in the demons. Now, we don't know the specifics of the ground rules, as it were, that God has set for demons and their interactions with the material world. We are not given the specifics of that. However, we can certainly say that it is unwise to attempt to interact with a demon. That is inviting in evil into your life, possibly into yourself. And so I do think it's important to differentiate those two different classes, as it were, of Satanists, the ironic neckbeard class, I guess, and then the actual power behind the throne, so to speak. 
the same thing we see in many secret societies. So the Masons, you can join the Masons. You could go tomorrow and join the Masons, assuming they're open on Sundays. But you could go and join the Masons. Not going to be very difficult. You're not going to get up into the higher echelons unless there's some reason for them to initiate you into that. And so you have the rank and file, as it were. Christians notably should not be Masons. The church traditionally has banned Masons from being members of churches. But then you also have those who hold the real power, who know the real reason they're doing the things they're doing. Well, I wanted to give Hans a chance to ask some questions. Um, but for a moment, I just wanted to also, before we get rolling into the the deep issues that we're, uh, we're focusing on, I wanted to give the audience, if they're not familiar with you, a little bit of a chance to know about your show and your backstory. Obviously, both of these uh, gentlemen have quite a bit of knowledge and uh, I would say dedication to this particular aspect of Christian life, and I would consider them authoritative. Um, but beyond that, uh, could you maybe tell us about how you both decided to work together and maybe what's been going on lately with your church? Sure. I uh, First, I'd like to thank you for having me on to, to feature Stone Choir before uh, our audience expanded significantly and a ton of people from the myth of the 20th century audience who came over. I, I got just a, a raft of DMs from guys who basically got hooked and went back and marathon the whole thing. So I think there's definitely a significant kind of spiritual crossover between our two audiences, despite the fact, you know, we're kind of tackling different things in different ways, but it's all about the same world and trying to struggle through it as, as men who want things to be better. Uh, and that was really the nexus for Corey and I beginning to work together. Um, we have each separately for for many years now online publicly discussed theology and politics in the intersection of the two. And I, you, you had men, mentioned in the intro that, that you thought we sort of came more from the Christian side than the nationalist side. I don't think there's any daylight between the two. I think that a proper understanding of both Christian and nation if everything were working perfectly, every single nation on the planet would be a Christian nation separately, like not not turning it into the you know the melting pot. That was a trick that was played on us in the last hundred years. But the fact that Christians should have Christian nations, that is, you know, both the political and you know racially homogeneous environment where laws and everything are oriented towards the the good and the beautiful everyone benefits when that occurs and you know something that we're going to do some upcoming episodes on the enlightenment we're going to get into you know subject of free will and things but there's a very clear overlap between men trying to navigate what do i do in, in my daily life and with the political space and my job and my church you know we'll we'll get into some of the troubles in churches particularly ours in a minute but as Corey and I were separately addressing these issues publicly, you know, we we're both, despite not knowing each other at the time, we were taking very similar approaches and reaching very similar men, uh, particularly you know, men like many in your audience who are not necessarily Christian, uh, maybe have left the church because their churches were you know, dumpster fires. And so as they, whatever they understood about Christianity when they were in them, they could tell that that wasn't it. And so 
it's only leaving the church in the most superficial kind of change of address sense. But I, I think it's entirely fair to say that in many cases, those weren't churches to begin with. So to whatever extent there was a departure, a lot of guys have had the church leave out for underneath them. And then as men look around and see the state of things, you're like, this, if this is Christianity, I don't want any part of it, which is, is the correct moral calculus. But it's not the end of the question because it begs the question that that was Christianity in the first place. And so that's kind of been the thrust of our separate efforts to say, you know, Christianity doesn't actually look like that. Christianity is not gutless. Christianity is not going to get your families killed and your borders overrun. That's, that's never been that case when there were Christian nations. It's when nations stopped being Christian that all these other problems started occurring to us. And yes, obviously I'm ignoring the time, you know, particularly in European history before Christianity came. But if we can you know, talk about the thousand years or so where Europe and Christendom were synonymous, those things, you know, where they occurred, it was the Muslim incursions that were fought off very successfully. It took a lot of work. It, it, it took hundreds of years to beat back those invasions, but we prevailed. Today's men are looking around. They're seeing the political problems. They're seeing the moral problems. They're, they're good men who are not Christians, who see evil in the world. And they say, like you said last time, I don't know if there's a God, but I can tell by looking at this stuff I'm seeing online, that there's got to be a Satan. There's got to be some sort of fundamental evil that's a metaphysical, supernatural evil. This isn't just people with bad politics. It's not just people with bad ideas. They're not just libtards or woke. It, they're not just even evil men. There's some animating force that's the only possible explanation for the degree and the coordination of their destructive acts. Because as Corey was saying at the beginning about you know, kind of the definition of good, naturally when you look at something good, you can tell it's good. You know, if you just look at like a you know a sculpture or whatever, like something that you would consider to be beautiful, something that took a year for a man using all of his available time and resources to create, you look at it and you say that's beautiful. Some guy with a wrench can destroy it in ten seconds. And today we are surrounded by people who want to swing the wrench. <laughs> and we're also surrounded by good men who may or may not be Christian, who look at that and say, you, you can't do that. And the, I think the underlying premise of, you know, I said it a little bit ago about morality and ethics and where those lines are drawn is that absent Christian morals, absent God, specifically, you know, the Christian God, it becomes I think, in my view, it becomes impossible to say why that's not possible because, you know, it's it's something that was in, uh, what was the movie with Dr. Manhattan? Sorry, I'm blanking. Haven't seen that one, I don't think. I think you're, I think you're thinking of Watchmen. Is that correct? Yes, the Watchmen. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One of the characters was basically a supernatural being. He he was effectively kind of God manifest through a nuclear accident, and he killed someone by basically deatomizing and reatomizing the person. So they were just struck dead, and someone was upset that he had done that. And he said, "Well, why do you care? All the atoms are still there. I haven't changed anything." And he took the life out of it, but materially all the stuff was still there and he didn't care about the goodness that he had removed by snuffing out a life. I think that at some point 
absent Christian morality, that's all people are left with. Because if you don't have a, it's easy for someone to be tricked into saying, well, I think it's okay. You know, it's either I'm minding my own business. They're not hurting anybody. You know what they do in their own bedrooms, all those arguments will eventually lead to a guy with a wrench destroying, you know, works of art that are a thousand years old or chopping down a tree that's 5,000 years old, like just happened in England this week. That sort of destruction is an inherent evil. And as Corey and I were tackling these subjects on, you know, in the intersection of politics and religion, we realized that we had to talk more about religion. Like it's, it's important to us personally, but like I said last time, I never really talked all that. I think I talked about it. I never personally really talked much about religion until I started talking about politics with other guys and realized that I couldn't explain the evil in the world in political terms. I could only explain it in Christian terms. And that was what drove me back into examining my faith and to trying to share it with others because I realized I don't have any other explanation for this. And it wasn't cope. Like it wasn't, it wasn't terror and retreat. When I looked at my Christian faith, like, yeah, this makes perfect sense. Here's the answer. So in my case, it wasn't, oh, boo-hoo, things are tough. You know, let me find a psalm. I, I, I don't intend to mock that, but I, I just mean that that's a view that some people have Christian of Christianity. When I looked at scripture, I saw basically a blueprint for what is happening and the blueprint for how Christianity has always worked and how I think it should work again. And so that was kind of the, the spiritual nexus of Corey and I getting together and, and tackling these things, because I think we're really a force mul multiplier. We're both good at this individually, and I think we can do even greater work together. I had essentially the, the same path into this. I really focused on politics and things related to that during undergrad and law school. So between 2004 and 2012, essentially, I didn't really focus that much on religion. I started paying more serious attention to religion for much the same reasons that Woe just advanced. You cannot really explain what is happening in the world purely politically. It doesn't make any sense. And I think that explanatory power is one of the best metrics when it comes to assessing a worldview or just an explanation, whatever it happens to be. If you are given a set of data and then you are given an explanation, if the explanation fails to explain the data or even just fails to explain all of the data, I think you have to be skeptical of the truth of that explanation. And when it comes to the state of the world and particularly politics and geopolitics and the state of our culture, certainly, unless you have a Christian framework, none of it makes sense because the things that our enemies are doing don't make any sense. They're inherently destructive and they are primarily destructive to self in many cases. Doing that, if you looked at it, say, from a neo-Darwinian perspective, makes zero sense. This is the antithesis of survival. This makes no sense whatsoever. There is zero fitness in what is being done. It is the opposite. But if you look at it from the viewpoint of the Christian, good versus evil, well, of course, then it makes perfect sense. Because what is Satan's overarching goal? And of course, he's the animating intelligence behind it, which, as Woe said, explains why there is seeming coordination amongst our enemies, amongst disparate groups that really shouldn't be coordinated. 
And if you have that animating intelligence, then you can explain why you have this coordination and you can also explain why they are doing what they're doing. Because Satan's entire goal is destruction. It's that simple. And this kind of ties back into the earlier discussion of Satanism, because you have people who say, well, Satan wanted to give humanity knowledge and freedom and sovereignty and whatever else it happens to be. No, Satan's only goal is destruction. He absolutely cannot win. He is destined to spend eternity in hell. All he can do is drag others there with him. Why? Because it's not misery loves company. There's no love there. There's no enjoyment. It's not even the sense of those who are miserable just want to see others miserable because he cannot derive any joy from seeing others miserable. It is simply because he is such a burned and destroyed creature because of what he has done to himself that what he seeks is destruction of all that is good and beautiful and true. And that is exactly why his followers do the same thing. That's why you see young women who go to university and enter university as beautiful young women and come out as abominations because of what is taught in those universities and what they learned in their sororities or elsewhere. Because the goal is the destruction of beauty. And we see that in the media with the destruction of truth. And we see it everywhere with the destruction of good these days. Because, of course, as we've mentioned in a number of episodes on Stone Choir, you don't have to destroy all of the transcendentals at once. And Satan isn't going to do that. He's going to target one of them as a core target and use that one to leverage himself into destroying other ones, which to some degree certainly gives him an advantage. As well mentioned, you can very much more easily destroy than you can create. Creation takes effort and time, unless of course you're God, although God notably did spend six days creating the universe. But creation takes time and effort. Destruction takes very little. You can take that hammer to a statue that took a year to make, and you can destroy it in a minute. And it is irretrievable from that point. We are faced on the side of good and construction and order. As a German, I always have to mention order, but we are faced on this side with the task of having to deal with many things at once. Because as we frequently say, you cannot just address one thing because all of the problems are interconnected. And this is part of the reason that we have focused so much on discussing religion, although you will note we also discuss plenty of politics and cultural issues on Stone Choir. One of the reasons we focus on religion, though, is because it is one of the parts that has to be addressed. It is one of the pieces on the board. Because if you don't address all of them at once, you're just leaving an opening for the enemy. It's like building a wall. If we were back in the time where walls were more effective, not saying they're not entirely ineffective today, but if we were back in the time where having a city wall was the difference between your women living peaceful lives and being kidnapped, well, having a gap in that wall is not the best way to construct the wall. And that's where we find ourselves. We're building the wall that protects civilization, that keeps out the barbarians, that keeps out the horde. If you leave a gap in the wall, whatever it happens to be, whatever subject or moving parts you neglect, you are just buying yourself future pain and suffering. And so that's why we are focused on the religious issues, because we focused on the politics and we still bring that up. Of course, we've focused on the issues in the culture and all of these other problems. But ultimately, if you don't get the foundational issue of the metaphysics of what is good, what is beauty, what is truth, 
why do these things exist? Upon what are they founded? If you don't get these things right, then everything else you've built is a house of cards. And so we have to get these issues right because we have the same goals, ultimately. All of us on the right, one would hope. The goal is to restore civilization, to rebuild our nations, and to establish rightful order. As Christians, we believe that is godly order, and we believe that godly order is the only path forward to reach that end goal. Hans, did you have anything you wanted to go into? Yeah. So, our guests are, uh, are of the Lutheran faith, um, and we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss the man whose name his faith is named after, uh, Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther uh, was engaged in his own uh, great fight against uh, the evils of his time in many ways. How would you compare um, the conditions of Martin Luther's uh, tribulations to today, which is that they're somewhat similar? Did Martin Luther see issues that we might see today, although you know, we didn't necessarily have trans pride parades in uh, in the 16th century, but were there the same kinds of deep levels of corruption at every institution in society at the time that he fought against that we see now? I would have to say no. He did not face all of the same problems we face today. I would say that we face worse problems because foundationally, fundamentally, in his time, you had a political system that even if there was corruption at some levels and in certain places, obviously, culturally, some nations more corrupt politically than others. However, you still had rulers who by and large were drawn from the population they were governing. And so they had that vested interest because a king has a vested interest because a king is going to pass his kingdom to his son and then to his grandson and his great grandson. There's an interest in the future of the people that you don't have with the sort of representative so-called government that we have today, particularly when you're in the looting stage as we are now. And so there was less political corruption. There was corruption in the church, certainly, but I would actually say it was less corrupt than the church is today, because at the very least, the Pope was not advocating for bringing in 10 million Muslims and settling them in the heart of Europe. That was, in fact, that would have been absolutely ridiculous to the point where if he'd done that, he probably would have been killed. For instance, um, it is worth raising the point that actually the preface to the Augsburg Confession, the Confession of the Lutheran Church, was addressed, of course, to the emperor, Emperor Charles, but in the opening paragraph, it is noted one of the reasons they were at Augsburg was, of course, to deliberate, to quote, to deliberate concerning measures against the Turk, that most atrocious, hereditary, and ancient enemy of the Christian name and religion. One of the reasons they were joined together at Augsburg was not just to discuss religious differences, but to discuss how to repulse Muslim invaders out of Europe. And so this was the church and the state coming together 
to attempt to deal with an existential threat. We don't have that today. Notably, Turk here just means Muslim in the, the parlance of this era. We don't have this sort of cooperation or even this sort of outlook today. We have hostile governments that are bringing in hostile foreigners. We have no real religious framework anymore. You have sort of a background radiation, as it were, of Christianity in the West. Some people have described the South as Christ haunted, for instance. But if you actually talk to the average Westerner, most people have no knowledge of the Christian religion anymore. They may know the name Jesus, but it's probably going to end there. That would not have actually been true in Luther's time. Despite the failures of the institutional church in Luther's time when it came to teaching, to instructing, particularly the illiterate, despite those failures, the people still knew something of the Christian religion. It was still a part of the culture. It was still a part of the civilization the civilization. It was still the truth upon which Europe was founded at the time. And of course, we see that foundation crumbling now, which is we would advocate, we would advance. One of the reasons that Europe is crumbling and the U.S. is in earnest following after. But so Luther had a better position than we have today. We have problems that were inconceivable I mean, they were inconceivable 50 years ago, but they were certainly inconceivable in Luther's time. That doesn't mean that we face insurmountable odds. It just means that we face a different problem, and it is, in fact, a larger problem because of how much of our society, our civilization, just everything is decaying and corrupted all at once. And I think one of the chief things that the modern church faces completely ineptly today is that because they did not face problems like we face in terms of scale, in terms of nature, the the doctrinal errors within the church today that are opening the doors for the hordes didn't exist at the time. They were unthinkable. And so as a result, 500 years ago, you had an entire culture of men who were devoted as a matter of duty to God and to nation to try to produce a sound doctrine. Now, obviously, there were lots of fights within the Reformation and between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church. Nevertheless, they were all at least driven by trying, for the most part, trying to serve God. There was, there was some rank evil there, but I think in general, I assume for the sake of argument, that most of them at least were acting in good conscience. The produced theology that came from those days that we rely on today. So, you know, Corey mentioned the Augsburg Confession. That's the beginning of the Book of Concord that is used by Lutheran Church basically to define the what Lutheranism is. That book was finished com compilation in 1580. So we don't have any new arguments for over 440 years about new issues. Now, there's obviously been men who've been debating other things, but it's mostly been academic questions. It's been fiddly stuff where, you know, it's the same thing you see today in PhD dissertations where guys get so narrowly focused on some tiny detail where they can make their mark. And the reason that they're reduced to that is that all the big questions have been answered, or at least they think that. And so 
there hasn't really been much valuable theology produced since the early Reformation, precisely because the questions kind of got dumber and the challenges didn't stay the same, but there was a lull. And so today, the modern church resting on its 500-year laurels, you know, in the case of, of, you know, most Reformationary bodies, looking back at the theology the men like Luther produced, they don't make arguments for the things we face today. That's another reason that Corey and I stepped into the breach with Stone Choir to address these questions, because we got tired of waiting for any pastors not to <laughs> to to say the worst possible things. Not only were they failing to make good arguments, but now they are actively making the worst possible arguments, causing destruction first in the church to doctrine and to the world. And so, you know, that's that it, the damage there is incalculable because on one hand, I want to try to get good men who don't have churches into churches but these are men who know that the world is burning and they know that in many cases bad churches have been active participants in doing that you know as as Rome is today and in many others I'm not not saying uh, Rome, the Roman Catholic Church our own church bodies are guilty as well we have to get the theology right because it's killing us bodily and bad theology also kills the soul and so it's we care about both you know, in the, the most recent episode that we did, one of the things we talked about was that as long as there's life, there's hope. It's more important for me, for any man who's listening, that he live until tomorrow than that he get baptized and receive faith in a month. Because if he's dead, he can't receive faith. He has to live. He has to be alive in order to get the spiritual things narrowed down. And that's not diminishing the importance of the spiritual. It's saying that a man's got to eat. A man's got you, you, you have to draw your next breath and you have to have your next heartbeat. And there's a whole lot of civilizational stuff that's the bulwark helping to make sure that happens. And so the duty of the church and the challenge of the church today is not simply to talk about Reformation era debates about salvation. We need to talk about the things that are actually threatening people's lives and their homes and family formation because. Whether or not, you know, Europeans go extinct, Christians are going to go extinct because we are not passing the faith on to new generations because there aren't new generations. The the cataclysmic decline in demographics is virtually no different in most modern denominations than it is in the world at large. And that in itself is bad theology. So, like, this intersection is, it's the whole shooting match. And back to Hans's original question about Luther— he would be excommunicated instantly today in any church body that holds his name. I, 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 it's continue your point. Continue your point. Uh, yeah, I mean that it's he would be excommunicated instantly. Like he's there. The thing, you know. In fact, it's very common. It's it's a way for modern pastors to score good boy points on the internet to explicitly condemn Luther's so-called anti-Semitism and say anyone who believes that is burning in hell. And when you ask them, so does that mean that Luther's burning in hell? They can't give you an answer because their their stated theological position necessarily says that he's damned because he believes this thing that they say is a sin. And they want to say that, you know, anyone who believes that is is also going to hell. So they will absolutely say this man, this man after whom the denomination was named instantly against his will. You know, was, Lutheran was an insult, but it was labeled to be antagonistic and it's stuck, you know, kind of as a, as like, okay, fine, we'll own it. 
today he would not be welcome in a single Lutheran church, not, not existing. And I think that's another one of our hopes is that at some point that will change because he got his theology right in our book and in a, in a manner that's consistent with scripture, but it was incomplete because we have modern challenges. And unfortunately, we don't have any competent theologians today tackling these things. So instead you get a couple podcasters. You answered my, uh, my next question already for me, which was, uh, you know, how would Martin Luther fare in today's church environment? Uh, would he be considered a crank? Would he, you know, be relegated to talking about QAnon on the internet? Like, you know, what, what would be his ultimate fate? Um, uh, you made a point earlier, both of you made a point about, uh, I believe the, the lack of, uh, new theological inquiries, uh, and something I've noticed too. Uh, I don't know if there's just something wrong with the seminary schools um, and just with religious teaching institutions in general now, um, but I, I really haven't seen anything inspire, almost anything inspiring, uh, in my entire adult life out of uh, almost any kind of modern uh, religious scholar, religious figure. Um, do any of these people in your experiences uh, tackle you know, basic questions now, good and evil? Um, from my experience, uh, they seem very interested in more the sociological rather than the philosophical, uh, the ethical. Um, they're, they're very strictly focused now on uh, sociological issues. Um, do, you, do you have similar experiences and do you know of anyone that's trying to you know, actually answer larger questions and try and expand or expound, I should say, on the faith more. There is some good theology in terms of exegesis that is being put out. Some of the Concordia commentaries, for instance, are quite good. Mm -hmm. Concordia Publishing House puts those out, the publishing arm of the LCMS. But when it comes to tackling the foundational issues, no, I wouldn't say that I've encountered any modern theologians who do a particularly good job of that. You have some who make some good philosophical arguments that are a mixed bag in some cases, but some good philosophical arguments. But when it comes to just the very basic issues, no, I don't think there's anyone addressing them, which is unfortunate. Historically, the church didn't address some of the foundational issues that we need to address. So, for instance, the fact that there are men and women, and they are, in fact, men and women, because historically, with some few exceptions, perhaps temple prostitution, you didn't really need to address that issue because no one thought that a man could become a woman or a woman could become a man or a man could be a dog in human skin or whatever craziness it happens to be. And notably, it is not just crazy. It's also evil. It's not just evil. It's also crazy. These were problems that did not arise historically. And so there, there is a point in the Book of Concord where it affirms that man was made male and female, that there are men and women. But it was a passing comment because this was just something that everyone knew. No one would have ever questioned these things. But today, because of how far we have fallen, we need to address these questions. Perhaps the antediluvians were as far foreign as we are, but we as far fallen as we are, but we don't know that because that is not given to us in scripture. So these are issues that are live issues, as it were, and we need to address them. As Woe has stated previously, 
the confessions that we have in the church are almost always responsive. They are reactive. The church typically does not produce confessions just because the church feels like producing a confession. And so the ecumenical creeds are responses to heresies that were then live. The Augsburg Confession is a response to heresies that were then live. The small cult articles, the small catechism, the large catechism, all those, those were to some degree instructive on top of addressing issues. But all of the documents the church has produced with regard to confession, with regard to working out the specifics of the faith, have been in response to live issues. And so today, we have quite a few live issues, and we need theologians to be addressing these issues. We need to have a definitive statement on the nature of man and woman, the fact that man and woman, these are ontological in nature. These are a status. You are a man or you are a woman. You cannot become the other. God has made you one or the other. It is not just biological even. It is biological and spiritual. We need theologians addressing these issues. And as Woe said, we simply do not have, I won't say that we don't have capable men because I do believe that we probably have some capable men, but they are not doing it. And part of the problem is, as you mentioned, our seminaries are turning out men who are not fit for the task. That doesn't mean they're turning out men who are unfit to be pastors. Certainly, we still have a number of good pastors, although most of them are keeping their heads down and not actually addressing the issues that need to be addressed. Not always mere cowardice, but sometimes it is. Our seminaries are not producing the caliber of men necessary to address these issues as proper theologians. And part of that is because the seminaries are doing the same thing that so many other schools are doing now. They are aiming at mediocrity, and that's what they produce. The goal is a dumbing down, it's homogenization, it is the creation of this basic standard where no one rises above it, and you don't have these outliers, and you need them. Luther was an outlier. Melanchthon was an outlier. The men who produced these great documents, these great treatises for the church, were outliers, and you need those men. God gives them to us for a reason. God gives the talents to men that are necessary for the time, and he also demands that we use the talents he has given us. So notably, wherever the men are to whom God has given the ability to address these issues in an adequate, in a satisfactory way, they need to step up and start doing what God has given them the ability to do, because not using those talents is sinful. I think it's important to reinforce something that Corey just said, that when we specifically speak about theologians, we're not using that interchangeably with pastors. As Corey said, there are a lot of good pastors outside Lutheranism as well. Frankly, most of the voices who are actively engaged in similar topics to Stone Choir, some of the you know general issues that we're concerned about, almost all the men who are speaking in terms that I find, you know, I may not agree with everything, but I'm glad they're talking because they're making important contributions to the broader discussion. They're mostly reform guys, you know, a lot of Presbyterians and some others. They're pastors. I I don't think they're theologians, and I don't say that as any sort of insult. They're pastors. They're trying to be faithful shepherds. These are men who have congregations. Additionally, they're trying to speak to the broader issues at large. And so that's the distinction. You know, when one of the reasons that Luther began writing 
one of the reasons even when he when he posted the 95 theses he was he was a theologian he his task was it became as a doctor of the church so he wasn't just a parish pastor he was he was one of the theology generators by call by by vocation today as i said earlier the guys pursuing phds they're just interested in fiddly stuff because they've they've completely hewn to the academic model of i got to get my thesis and make my tiny little mark on something completely irrelevant that no one's ever said or done before. And I'm not going to ruffle any feathers because the whole point is to get my degree and then to get tenure and to be left alone and publish books where, you know, I don't offend anybody. That's what's being produced by the seminaries almost exclusively. And that's obviously a problem because as Corey said, you know, when, when these times arise, when there are these theological gaps where Satan's Satan's going to keep maneuvering. You know, I've previously described the Book of Concord from 1580 as the Lutheran Maginot line. It's this impenetrable wall around things like justification. How are we justified before God? And so almost every Lutheran theologian today, every Lutheran pastor, there aren't theologians, but pastors are only equipped to battle that fight. They can argue justification all day long and they'll do a good job. But when confronted with something like my daughter wants to become a man, they just hem and haw. They don't have anyone who wrote down a good argument for them and they're not competent to make it themselves. And some do an okay job and some are trying, some are making it worse. But it's it's a crisis for the church that we are not taking these threats as existential threats because the rate of decay and the rate of attack in the world is accelerating to the point that we can't count on there being another hundred years to sort this stuff out. I think as we all watch world events, I think that it's easy to see a trajectory where things can end very quickly civilizationally. So, you know, the, the last episode that we did on Stone Choir was about normalcy bias, about men thinking it's always existed so it's going to keep on existing that whatever we have today is inevitable it's not having lights having a church having you know pastors none of that's inevitable that is all a product of all of these systems that have to exist to continue to produce them reliably and the systems are being knocked out which inevitably means the supply will be cut off and then you're left without it and that's a crisis that is going to hurt everyone we should also note that not only are pastor and theologian not coterminous, theologian is not a subset of pastor. Lutherans, of course, can very easily affirm this, and we should be able to, although some pastors try to argue against it. Luther was a pastor. Luther was a theologian. Melanchthon was a theologian. Melanchthon was never a pastor. So with Lutherans, we adhere to a confession that was written by a man who was never a pastor. And so there's a Venn diagram here, but there are those who are theologians and not pastors. Well, from, from a more secular background, I can think of several analogies here, but maybe, maybe the, the best one I can put forward is the difference between a scientist and an engineer uh, or an inventor uh, and somebody who uses a tool. Uh, and I think your pastor is somebody who is out there in the field doing the work, but they didn't come up with the technology, the technique, the technique, the solution per se. They just, they know enough to apply it, but 
it takes a special, unique person, and they're not very common, I think, to come up with a more generalizable solution to many unforeseen problems. And then when somebody has that tool in their toolbox, they can then apply it. But for a plumber or a carpenter or a mechanic to come up with all the tools they use, that's probably asking a bit much. So that's the analogies you know, that come to mind when you're talking about the difference between a pastor and a theologian. And uh, I don't know if people in church even recognize that difference because I think they, they, they look to the pastors, maybe the authority, and maybe that's how they should. But uh, I think there is something missing if there are novel problems that seem to be pretty novel, as we talked about with the transgenderism and pastors seem to be fumbling the ball on that one uh, that I think asks for, for more. Um, and hopefully some of us can come up with that answer. Um, I had a, also another thought and I'd like to present this to both of you. Uh, I had a prior conversation with uh, a guest and we were actually talking about the percentage of the communist uh, party in the CIA uh, in the United States over time. And I thought it was instructive because it helps us sort of plot out over, you know, a timeline. When did things go bad in particularly, and are, are they improving? Are they not improving? It's sort of like having a scorecard for a business or a sports team. You, You need a way to keep score. And so I think the analogy for our discussion is maybe the percentage of good versus evil in the world. And from what I'm hearing, it sounds like, good is losing a little bit compared to evil and there was more good in the world in previous times but how does that how does that line graph look to both of you and what can we learn from it because oftentimes if you notice patterns in a chart there's often events that triggered those changes uh if it, it's rarely a straight line i mean if you study the stock market or anything like that uh rare as a company that goes up and to the right, as they say. Uh, There's a lot of volatility, up and down, up and down. And in our case, it's not necessarily an infinite progression, uh, although you can maybe argue that as well. But in terms of the war between good and evil, there's only 100% uh, of the world to, to dominate. And there's a certain percentage of it that's controlled by the good, and then there's a certain percentage of it that's controlled by the evil. If we can notice where that's going, and it obviously sounds like it's going down in terms of good share, but if we can notice the patterns, we can maybe pinpoint as to why it's happening and then figure out a way to reverse that trend. So maybe you guys can comment on the, on the, the shape of that graph and then why, why does that graph look that way and what can we learn from it? There is from an ebb and pers- flow. Go ahead. From my perspective, I don't think that keeping score is really the model that's going to tell you what's actually happening for this reason. There are certain things, like I, like I just said, you know, you need electricity. You need, you, there are certain things that must exist for life as we know it to continue. And there's a minimum threshold of some sort of civilization beneath which each of those things just falls away. You know, the very most advanced ASIC production, you know, CPU production in the world is in Taiwan. The smallest 
most complex CPUs anyone's ever made that anyone knows how to make are made on a tiny island that China is about to invade. In this decade, they will certainly invade Taiwan. That production will cease to be available to the rest of the world. And, you know, those factories are, you know, $12, $14 billion a piece. The scientists who know how to actually build the machinery to make those things, there aren't that many of them. And one of the things that we've seen from nuclear proliferation in other countries is that if there's a domain expert that can give you a specific type of expertise, certain nation states will tend to target those guys for assassination. I think that there's a very real likelihood that in this decade, we will see China not only take Taiwan, knocking out the vast majority of the most advanced ASIC production in the world, but I think they may very well go after the men who actually know how to build those machines. So they will then have a sole monopoly on the best. Now, there's there's older stuff that exists elsewhere, but when you're talking about the top-tier technology, everything assumes that that exists. And so even just rolling back to 10-year-old technology, well, for us, you know, if, if you don't know what's involved in producing stuff, you think, well, you know, 10 years ago was just fine. Yes, it was. The difference is that we almost don't know how to make anything today without some of the new tech. And so there's just one small example of how things that are just kind of baked into the system, we just assume that they're going to keep existing. They can very easily go away. And so that one support is knocked out. Personally, I think it would effectively end modern civilization by the dominoes that would fall. It's you know some people think that's silly. It's not. I'm not prepared to flesh out that argument, but there is something behind it to say that something that can, if you don't understand it, can seem small, can actually tr do tremendous damage. And so on on the your graph theory question, you know, if you're just looking at scores, well, yeah, one thing not really a big deal. But if it knocks out something that is supporting what upholds many other things, you have a cascade failure where pieces knock each other out like dominoes, and very quickly you can be left with nothing. That's yeah, you know, it's the, the physical world. The churches are in kind of the same shape. I think the first episode that I recommended you listen to when we very first spoke was the IQ episode, and one of the points of us doing the IQ episode was specifically to contextualize the global animosity towards whites. And the case that we made in that episode, we made in other episodes of Stone Choir, is that the fact that whites are under attack worldwide for displacement, for annihilation, for being bred out, it's one of those things that we can tell it's evil, but you can't figure out what's animating it. And it's something that Corey and I talked about for a while, and we realized that we know what the answer is. The answer is the history of Christendom, because the fight, despite the fact that anyone is capable of being a Christian, anyone, regardless of race or anything else, is capable of receiving the Christian faith and capable of spreading it as well. Human history tells us that that has never happened except at the hands of whites until really the last century. Colon colonialism, all the things that are dirty words today are literally how the gospel was spread by whites to non-whites in places that Satan had owned for thousands of years. Africa, the Americas, he had full reign for thousands of years. And so when Christian Europeans came, one of the things that they did was Christianize them. And I believe, and you know, the case that we made in the IQ episode was that that is 
something that I don't think that I don't think only whites are capable of doing it. We do not believe that. However, we believe that only whites have actually done it. That is a verifiable historical fact. You know, there was a, there was a slitter, sliver of Christianity in India. There was a sliver of Christianity in Ethiopia and Sudan from the very earliest days of the church, and they never spread it. It w- went to Europe. It stayed in Europe. When Europeans started going elsewhere, we took Christianity with us. And then a few centuries later, after the Enlightenment, Christianity started dying. And so it's retreating back, and it's it's being extinguished in the West. And the strategy of many of our churches today is to celebrate the extinction of whites. It's something that the LCMS and every other major church body is doing. They're saying, we welcome the refugee. We're so excited to have all these black and brown faces coming to replace us. We're going to hand them Bibles, and they're going to be the future of the church. If you understand the level of intelligence necessarily necessary to under things, understand things like hypotheticals or smoke detector beeps, you understand that there are aspects of theology that cannot be propagated by someone who can't get stuff that basic. And so it's not, you know, this this is why Corey and I are hated, because we're willing to say certain people are simply not capable of doing certain things. And if whites are wiped out as they're trying to do, I there's no reason to believe that Christianity will not die with us. Not because others are not capable of it, because there's no tr- background of others propagating the faith. And when you look at IQs in South America and in Africa, they're literally not capable of doing it. They and we see that today when we take the the faith to Africans, it's basically a welfare program. And there there are believers there, but they're also animists. They will immediately mix whatever the the missionaries tell them with their own demon worship. And, you know, they'll they'll be Christians on Sunday and then they'll go home and they'll keep worshiping the demons of their ancestors. And so they're these are people who maybe if you're shepherding them continuously and you're supervising them, you can keep them Christian. They will not be Christian if you leave for 20 years. And that's effectively the plan that the churches have today is that it's fine if we all go extinct because everyone else is, you know, we gave them Bibles, we translated Bibles, it's all going to be okay. I don't believe that's the case. And I believe that that is the Christian explanation for geopolitics. I think it's the linchpin of of really what we're seeing in this century. We're seeing Europe and Christendom being wiped out because if we die, there's nothing that there's any reason to believe will continue to pre- perpetuate the faith. Obviously, God can do whatever he wants. I mean, we we, we called the, the podcast Stone Choir in reference to the parable or when Jesus said that the Pharisees were mad at him for his his followers praising him. And he said, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so the premise of our podcast was that we're not pastors. We're, we don't have a vocation to do this on paper, yet we have a duty to do it. We're conscious bound to do it. And we're pointing out things that make people very angry because it interrupts all the stuff that's in progress. And I would rather be hated by the world than live in the world that they're going to produce if if they get their way. I guess what I was trying to get at is how do you, how do you measure success? It's an important question and I know it's difficult to answer that, but I think it doesn't mean it's not important. And in any endeavor, you have to have some unifying, very clear way of explaining 
to people and not even having to use words oftentimes. It's often helpful just to have something intuitive, like if you're fighting a war, you have a divide between the two sides on a map. And typically that's considered good if you get more territory versus the other side. So that's sort of the analogy I was going for here. You know, maybe the line graph was a bad example because I don't mean to imply that you can predict necessarily based on the direction uh, or the trajectory of that line where it's going to go necessarily. But what I was trying to also do was study that shape and say there was a spike. There, there was an increase in good. And I'm not going to say when that was because I don't know. But if we can identify that at least, we can learn from that. And, and maybe, you, you, you know, throughout the whole like graph, you know, visualization, uh, it's just for me, it, it's helpful to summarize things. But what I'm getting at is how do you measure success? How do you measure good? Uh, and we've talked about it's, you know, some of this is intuitive, but what, what time period was it better and why? And I, I have a feeling it wasn't just a straight line down. I, I think there were ebbs and flows. And that, to me, indicates that there were forces on the good that were winning and they maybe lost ground at some point. So I'm really just trying to examine what is, what is success? How do, we, how do we accomplish you know, the, the war goal of defeating evil? That, that's really what I'm trying to get at here. I personally do not actually subscribe to the I know the Anglicans like it and some of the Roman Catholics, the concept of the long defeat, that we will simply over time continue to suffer defeat after defeat after defeat. I don't subscribe to that. I believe C.S. Lewis was one man who popularized that at least for Anglicans and then also for non-denominational so-called Christians. <clears throat> and I, I mean to apply the so-called non-denominational, not necessarily to the Christian part of that. But when it comes to evil, there is an ebb and flow throughout history. There have been high points for good. There have been low points for good. There have been high points for evil. And there have been low points for evil. And by and large, that is going to depend upon how thoroughly Christian the society has become. In part, in Europe, in the Middle Ages, and even until fairly recently, I'm thinking a couple centuries ago, of course, you had widespread Christianity. Basically, everyone was Christian. Everyone was baptized as a child. Everyone was brought up with some knowledge of the faith. Your laws were based on the moral law as contained in Scripture, and so on and so forth. And when you have that sort of environment, there's a natural suppression of evil that occurs. And so you have the good is preeminent, the good is predominant. And of course, it is the same thing to measure the preeminence of the good and the absence of evil, because the absence of evil is obviously the preeminence of the predominance of the good. But I think it's important to bear in mind when thinking about how the good triumphs, what does scripture, what does Christianity teach about rulers? Well, before we get to what scripture, what, what scripture, what Christianity teaches about rulers, I think it's important to look at a philosophical question. What is a fundamental difference, perhaps the fundamental difference, between God and a king? Well, a king can remove your head from your shoulders, and that is certainly one of his duties, because as scripture says, 
He does not bear the sword in vain. That is one of the duties of the king to remove evil men from society. But God can certainly remove your head from your soldier, from your soul, your shoulders, if he is so inclined. But God can also make you alive. In fact, he is the one to whom you owe your life. And so that's the difference. God has absolute and total control over life and death. The king has a much more limited subset of tools to use to enforce order in society, to make things as they should be. And so one of the duties of a Christian ruler, perhaps the core duty of a Christian ruler, is to remove evil men from society. And he does that with the sword. Scripture is very clear on that. From the beginning of Scripture, Genesis 9-6, commanding capital punishment, to all of the various injunctions regarding godly rulers, to the statement in the New Testament that he does not bear the sword in vain, and the description of the ruler as one who promotes the good and suppresses the evil, it is all throughout Scripture that it is the duty of the godly prince to suppress the evil and therefore to safeguard the good. And that is one of the ways that you can measure whether or not the good is advancing or retreating, is the suppression of evil. Now today, it's not very difficult to find evil men who should be suppressed. And if we had a godly prince, a godly king, if we had a godly government suppressing these evil men, that would be the good advancing. We could point to that and say, good is triumphing, good is making headway, evil is retreating. Today, as things stand, it is clearly the opposite. We can see that evil is advancing. And so you can see that ebb and flow. There are ways to measure that. And I do think that it is helpful at times to measure because at the very least, it gives us an idea of what we're doing, what we should be doing. If evil is advancing, then obviously good men are not doing enough. If evil is retreating, then that's a fairly good indicator that good men are doing what they are supposed to do. And we could give specific times historically when the evil has been suppressed and the good has advanced. But I think it's more important to look at the general matter of how we measure it. And again, I think that is primarily how much evil is suppressed is the measure of how much the good is advancing, how much good men are doing what they should be doing. It's interesting you use the word suppress as opposed to defeat. Because obviously in a war, if you kill your enemy, they're pretty much gone. And you can also suppress them, but that's not guaranteeing they won't come back. Do you I think don't it's object to killing them? <laughs> I didn't think you did, but do you think it's realistic or, or even possible to completely destroy evil? And maybe that's when you know the second coming happens. I don't know, or, you know what 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 you believe on that, but that's obviously something that is well to me. It's 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 never happened, but. You know, one one can hope. Um, I guess I'm just asking: is it is this a war we can win, or is it a war that we're just going to have to continue to fight? And maybe that's the point. I don't know. For Christians, the complete suppression of evil is an eschatological promise, not a temporal promise. So yes, that will happen at the second coming, when the wicked are all thrown into hell. That is, of course, the complete suppression, destruction of evil, and. We see this also in the political realm, in the social realm. 
as soon as good men start to neglect their duty, evil will creep in. The Ernst Junger quote comes to mind about the man and his son standing on the threshold, axe in hand. That is what maintains order and the safety of the household. Ultimately, it is the willingness of men to protect women and children that maintains the security of the house. It isn't ultimately laws or even the king. Yes, the king can establish order such that it is easier to maintain these things, to safeguard these things. But evil men will still exist, and evil men still have to be destroyed. And that is ultimately the duty of each and every man to fight this battle. And it's not just the external battle. Obviously, there's the internal temptations and the desire to sin and rebellion and all those things. There's the internal struggle as well. But there is that external struggle because there are men who will decide to give in to the temptation to be wicked, and they will be destructive and they have to be destroyed in turn. Does that mean that we can destroy all of them? No, but we can certainly get close, and Europe did. If you look at what the godly rulers in Europe did for centuries, they simply executed all of the violent criminals or exported them to some other part of the world, got rid of them. They removed them physically from society. They completely and utterly erased the ability of these wicked men to do evil. And how were they repaid? With extremely low rates of violent crime and other crimes as well. Once you start removing these individuals from society, well, those men can no longer commit evil. And it is also to some degree a disincentive to others when it comes to, well, maybe I should commit evil. Oh, no, wait, the king will remove my head. That's a fairly good incentive not to do evil. And so we know that you can, through right policy, create a better environment and create a more godly, a more moral society. And we see the opposite because Africa ran the exact opposite experiment in essence. They didn't punish these things. They didn't establish order. And now you see these enormous crime rates in Africa. And of course, there's a feedback loop there too concerning genetics and impulse control and all those things, which is relevant. It's very important, but it's a, a secondary issue. The central issue, the central question is, can you defeat evil? And I would say, yes, but not totally. You cannot completely remove evil because, again, humans are fallen. We have original sin. We have a fallen nature. And Satan still exists. He is still out there prowling around, seeking men that he can tempt into evil. And so we have to be on guard against that. But Scripture is very clear. Those who obey God... Those who follow his commands will be rewarded, and not just in the next life, but also in this life. And so we believe that God is true to all of his promises. If we are obedient, if we are faithful, God will also be faithful to us. He will fulfill those promises. And some of those are specifically for this life. The good things in this life will come. And so, yes, it is possible to defeat evil with that two-pronged approach, loyalty to God, fidelity to God, right faith, and also a godly prince exercising his duty to wield the sword. We talked a little bit before the show about why in particular the Christian God is the God to worship or is just the true God and therefore you should worship God. 
would you like to, Corey, uh, would you like to give the argument, at least um, broad strokes, as to why you believe in the Christian God? And for those that don't even have any faith in a higher power, if if you have time, maybe you could give the uh, the argument about why there is a God at all. Um, and by the way, this is something that um, other other people on the show actually have actually talked about. I, I do recall, maybe I heard it on another show, but I do recall E. Michael Jones once giving an analogy of there's the infinite progression, as you put it, of uh, of box cars on a on a railroad. Something's pushing it. And whether it's the Big Bang, something came before that, we don't know. But there's a locomotive, there's a force behind that. And so just wanted to connect dots for people who have been listening for a long time. This is, um, this is not too, too complex of a question, and hopefully Corey can eloquently uh, phrase it from a Lutheran and Christian perspective. And, and why, is, why is Christianity the, the way to, to, to interact with God, I guess, is really what I'd like to know. Of course. So to start off, we look at the world around us. We see that there are things. We'll start with material things. So I have pens and a water bottle on my desk. Actually, it's a tea bottle, but close enough. There are things out in the world. Why are there things? Well, if there are things, if there is anything, there must be a reason for that thing existing which is a foundational issue. It's, as I mentioned when we were talking, chatting before the show, it's basically the fourth or fifth law of logic as given by Leibniz for those who want to look into that further. But for anything that exists, there is a sufficient reason that thing exists. However, we notice out in the world, not only that there are material things, there are immaterial things. The best example of this is a quale, which is a personal experience of something that is specific to the individual, exists only for the individual, and exists immaterially, the plural being qualia. The existence of qualia proves that there are immaterial things. Now, if there is a thing and there's a reason for the thing, well, there's a reason for the reason. And also, there must be this infinite regress unless we have something at some point that is foundational, that is self-subsisting, that exists in and of and by and because of itself. This foundational thing we could call God, but it does not have any of the attributes of God so far as we have built up this argument. But we do know that there is at some point in this chain of causality a thing that is its own cause. What is the nature of this thing that is its own cause? Well, we can say, for one, it must be omnipotent because it has caused all else to exist, so it must have all power. It is omniscient because it necessarily needs the knowledge in order to have made all things exist as they do. It naturally possesses all knowledge. Well, these are two of the traditional attributes of God. However, we don't have the Christian God. We have a thing that is omnipotent and omniscient. However, notably, another attribute that this thing must have is it must be personal. And I mean that in the philosophical sense. 
in the philosophical sense, to call a thing personal is to mean that it is a personal agent, which is to say that it can act. It can choose to do something. An impersonal agent does not act. And so, for instance, this pen that I'm holding on my this pen that was on my desk, I picked it up. I'm holding it. This pen is a thing. It does not act. It does not take notes. It does not write. It does not do anything unless I cause it to do so because I am a personal agent. I can act. The universe, all things I mean by the universe, which is all cosmos means notably, began to exist. That requires that the thing that caused it to begin to exist acted because it went from nothing to something. And so we have this God that is omnipotent and omniscient at a minimum, we're doing a minimal argument here, is also personal. Thus far, we have a personal God who is omnipotent and omniscient. This is not yet the Christian God necessarily, because why isn't this God, say, unitary? Because, of course, the Christian God is triune. The reason that I would argue this God is not unitary is simple. If this God were unitary, he would exist of, for, by, and in himself exclusively. He would never do anything outside himself. All perfection would be contained within him, and there would be nothing external. He would never create. He would never do anything outside himself. Well, let's move on from one person to two. If this God were dual, if there were two persons within the Godhead, these two persons would exist only in the relationship to one another. They would not go outside themselves. It would be a back and forth, a perfect back and forth, but a back and forth nonetheless between the two persons of the Godhead that would never have external consequences. There would be nothing that would flow outside of the Godhead. Now, if we add naturally after one and two, a third person. In the existence of three persons within the one Godhead, we have a more complex relationship. There is the relationship between and among these persons that creates a sort of metaphysical momentum within the Godhead that externalizes itself in the creative activity that results in everything we see, that results in the universe, that results in everything God has created. And we would call this externalizing force love because scripture, of course, is clear. God is love. So if we build up this argument in that fashion, we can very easily see that because there is anything, there must be an ultimate cause. The ultimate cause must be personal because the ultimate cause acted. And then the ultimate cause must be triune because the ultimate cause acted externally. And so that is how I would build up the basic argument to go from the simple fact that you can see there are things or feel there are things, however it happens to be, to the triune God of scripture necessarily being the correct God. I would add another layer to the argument at some point. I'll actually perhaps formalize this and, and publish an article, but I would add another layer for those who perhaps want a, another path to arrive at the end conclusion. I would argue that in addition to the God being omniscient and omnipotent, he is also omnibenevolent. All good flows from him. Again, goodness, beauty, truth, the transcendentals necessarily being in 
fact identical to God because God is his attributes, his attributes are God. God being omnibenevolent would not leave his creation without knowledge of him. And so there is necessarily going to be some knowledge of God in creation. And as we built up with the argument that this is the triune God, or at least this is a triune God, the only knowledge of a triune God extant in creation is Christianity. And so if God is omnibenevolent, he would not leave us without knowledge of him. And so the only knowledge of a triune God being scripture, scripture is that knowledge that this omnibenevolent God has left in creation for us. And so I would conclude that Christianity is necessarily the true religion. Okay. I've, I've heard of the Trinity, the Holy Trinity. Is, is that the same as the triune or is that something different? Trinity and triune are interchangeable. Okay. Okay. I have a few more questions. Hans, did you want to jump in though? I don't want to step on you. No, continue with your questions. Well, I was, um, I wasn't reading paradise lost, but it was actually brought up in another book that I was looking over. And I, I assume all of us are somewhat vaguely familiar with the story, but it, from what I understand, and I haven't read it, I probably should, but it, uh, it's, it's found its way into influence in a lot of, uh, other works of fiction. Uh, but it, it's basically an exploration of free will. Why, why did God give us, um, some of these characteristics and why is there sin even if God is omnibenevolent as Corey just put it. And it's kind of a debate between Satan and, and God. And I was curious about if anybody here has anything to say about that. I think it, it asks a lot of these kind of eternal questions as to if, if God is so great, if God is caring so much about us, is it enough to just give us knowledge of him? Or is it, is it more good to actually give us freedom from sin? And maybe, maybe it's our fault that we, we sinned, but that's kind of the crux of the book. It's, it's like, why, why were we even tempted to sin? Why, why was Eve eating that apple? Uh, well, Satan tempted her, but why was she so weak that she had to succumb to that? Uh, wouldn't God be, uh, kind enough to grant Eve the strength to resist that? Those are the sorts of questions. I think they're, they're interesting questions. Uh, I've, if any of, any of you pondered that, do you, do you think that's a good line of inquiry? I think it's a, a very good line of inquiry. It's probably the most difficult question to answer in philosophy, theology, period. There is a question called the crux theologorum in particularly Lutheran, but just generally in Christian theology, which is there are two propositions. One, scripture is very clear, God desires that all be saved. And two, not all men are saved. And this is related to that question. And the reason that it's called the crux theologorum is in essence, it is unanswerable, which I know is unsatisfying for many, but not everything in life is going to be answerable. I'll come back to that in a moment. But when it comes to original sin, or really, I guess, when it comes to the original sin, which would notably not be Adam's sin, but it would be Satan's fall, because that would be the first sin. 
how do we explain that? And I'm not sure that we can. We can, at least I'm not sure that we can in a way that will be satisfactory to everyone. I find it satisfactory, but I'm not everyone. I think that the answer, and I think that many theologians have proposed this as their solution, I think the answer is quite simply, it is free will. God has given us a free will. God, to speak after a fashion, has decided that that is such a good that it is something that he is going to give us even with full knowledge that many of us will abuse it in an ultimate sense and all of us will abuse us will abuse it in a proximate or intermediate sense god still decided that it was such an important thing that it was such a true good for us to have free will that he created us with free will despite the consequences and that is also notably the case for the angels because many of the angels fell with satan but not all of the angels fell with satan and so i think the the crux theologorum the question of why not everyone is saved we can't answer it entirely with free will for specific theological purposes and i'm not sure you want to get into monergism versus other ideas but whether or not we can answer the crux theologorum, I think that we can answer why is there sin with a simple response that free will exists. Hmm. We, we do have the option to rebel. And you could make the argument that it, is, it would be completely meaningless. I don't find this argument particularly compelling myself, but I recognize that there is something in the argument. It's worth advancing because it does have some value. Would there be any meaning, would there be any point in creating automata if God had just created a bunch of robots that loved him unconditionally and never had any thoughts of their own? They just did exactly what they were programmed to do. Hmm. And I have to say, if I were God, if I were creating a universe, that wouldn't be a very satisfying universe. Right. I can create that universe on my computer right now. I can spin up a strategy game. But... That seems to be not what God wanted, and so it's not what he did. It's like you want your wife to genuinely love you versus just simply obey you. I, I would assume that's similar. I mean, it, it yeah, means I a agree. lot more. I agree. Yeah, it means more to have someone who genuinely chooses you versus has to, you know. It's a big distinction. That makes sense. If I could add just one thing, I tend to sidestep a lot of these why does bad thing happen questions with a cheap shot that I find unassailable personally. So it, it gives me comfort. If God is God, then God must be perfect. And if God is perfect because he is God, then whatever he did that led to this was perfect. And the fact that I can't make sense of it, I simply believe is due to my fallen nature mm. and not to God making a mistake. So I, I root my confidence in God being God and not me understanding how things work because we all run out of runway for our reason. And if we make our reason the root of our comfort, then in the absence of knowledge, we are comfortless. And I, I don't find that appealing. And I also don't find it necessary because going back to you know, the ontological argument, which, again, I I hadn't heard until Corey had explained it to me after you asked, I asked him the, the question. Hmm. 
I am very thankful that I was raised Christian because I don't know if I would be Christian if I had not been, you know, baptized as a child and raised by my parents. Like this was given to me. And then as an adult, you know, throughout my whole life, whenever I've confronted any sort of question that would cause me to question anything, you know, to question something religious or to question my faith, I've never struggled personally because there's always been an answer that satisfied everything. And the most a cop out I will appeal to is is that like well I believe that God is God, and you know I'm I am meat that He created to worship Him, and I'm just going to worry about doing that the best that I can. I mean we're more than me we're we're unified body mind and spirit. I I don't mean to that be that reductionist, but relative to the Creator I'm not much. I leave His stuff to Him, and I trust that I have been given what I need to you know, to make it to heaven, to do whatever it is that God desires for me. As Corey said, downstream, some of the implications from the ontological argument are that the triune God will be found in creation, and we find that in Scripture. So for me, that works, you know, having just heard it, you know, a month ago, because it all adds up. Now, is that circular? Yeah. Some things are circular. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're wrong. So again, I'm very thankful to have been raised this way, because I don't know if I would find that convincing, and I'm I'm thankful that I don't have to be convinced because having sort of been primed to just believe that, it still works. I don't feel like I'm I'm being lazy or intellectually dishonest by adhering to to a few very simple givens that are unknowable, but you know, every man, regardless of his religious beliefs, understands that the unknowable exists. I mean if you sure. you will descend into madness if you can think you can understand everything. You'll lose your mind. So we, we all have that starting spot, and and I think that I think Christianity fills in the rest. Just just to give a, a modern analog, it's it's kind of funny if anybody who's looked at this uh, AI, artificial intelligence, ChatGPT uh, explosion over the past year actually understands how it works, because I think to well, a layman, not to abuse the analogy, but to somebody who's not familiar with how machine learning functions, it may appear to be this infinite oracle of knowledge. Uh, and it simply is not the case. It, it's actually, it's, it, it is circular. It's not, it has nothing to do with God, but it's just a system that is studied previous works of knowledge and synthesized a very clean interface for asking it questions. But it actually doesn't have any real intelligence to expand beyond that. And it's, uh, it's very limited actually, but regardless, you could probably spend your entire life asking chat GPT questions and not have enough time to answer or get answers for everything. Uh, so there are limits even to that. And even that system is incomplete. So to actually talk about the entire universe or the world or everything God created, you simply can't get to it. It's just impossible. That, that's simply my argument. And I agree with you. Um, and then I, I think a harder question is where do you decide to defer to authority or, uh, experts or faith? I think that's a trickier question because I think some things in our lives, if we believe in free will, we can exert some influence over, and then some things we can't, uh, Perhaps that's a, a gift of maturity and wisdom that over time we learn these things, but it is not an easy 
question to answer for me at least to know where my limits are. Uh, and I certainly have learned I have limits, obviously, uh, but some things are very tempting. And so you, you sometimes wonder and, uh, you know, that's what makes life interesting at least. When it comes to understanding these sorts of issues, I think it's helpful to bear in mind the concept of the infinite. I'm not saying that people have to fundamentally understand the infinite or you have to have a a working knowledge really of the infinite, but just a basic understanding of the fact that for there to be anything, the thing must be contained within something else. And necessarily that eventuates in there being an infinite. And if that eventuates in there being an infinite, the infinite is infinitely to risk repeating myself ad nauseum, but the infinite is infinitely greater than you as a finite. And so there is necessarily something that is so great you will never be able to understand it, which gives us the basic foundation necessary to realize and accept there are things we cannot know. There are limits to our knowledge. There are necessary limits to our knowledge. We will never be able to transcend as finite beings. Just the mere existence of the infinite is proof of that. And Woe touched on, and perhaps some of your questions there at the end also touched on, the issue of how we know anything or how we base our knowledge. What's the ultimate foundation? We could appeal to the laws of logic, but what are the laws of logic? They're a dogmatic assertion. You can't necessarily prove the laws of logic because to prove the laws of logic, you need the laws of logic. And so this is essentially the, the Munchausen trilemma. There are only three ways to found knowledge of any kind. There's the circular argument, the regressive argument, and the dogmatic argument. And no single argument and no combination of these arguments is completely satisfying in the logical sense. And of course, they're all, in a foundational way, relying on logic. And so you're assuming logic. You're always assuming the dogmatic argument to some degree. That is simply the reality of being a human being. We have limitations. And one of those limitations is that at some point, we have to have some foundational thing that we assume is true. And we are assuming it's true. This is the case regardless of whether it is religion or physics. At some point, there is some foundational thing you have simply assumed is true. Now, for the Christian, what we would advance is that we have been given the gift of faith by God, and so we recognize in Scripture the voice of God because of the indwelling of the Spirit. That is how we can recognize that Scripture is true. And so there's a divide here. And I wish more Christians would pay attention to this because I've seen a lot of very weak arguments because this point is missed. If I am arguing with a Christian about something, if I am discussing something with a Christian, I can say that we believe Scripture because Scripture is the Word of God, and we know that because we have been given the free gift of faith, and it is that testimony internally of the Holy Spirit that says, this is the word of God, you can believe it. It is the order there, the way that is built up that is important. We believe, therefore, the rest of that. That is not the way that you can come to this question when dealing with someone who does not believe. 
because the person who does not believe doesn't have belief. And so you don't have that foundation on which to build it. You have to come at this a different way. For the unbeliever, it is essentially the exact inverse of that. You have to go at it from proving scripture and then saying, if scripture is reliable, that would tend to indicate there is a God. Now, of course, as I pointed out earlier with the other argument, there are a number of ways to arrive at the conclusion that it is at least reasonable to believe in God. And I'm not going to say that reason is bad. Now, as a Lutheran, of course, there are those who are going to think of some quotes that Luther had, particularly choice quotes about reason. But that was directed at reason as a God, enshrined as it was in the Enlightenment. We'll get to that in our Enlightenment episodes. But reason is not the be-all, end-all. But reason can be used as a very good tool. It is the ministerial use of reason versus the magisterial reason as a minister, reason as a tool versus reason as king or lord. And so we can build up the argument of look at all of this evidence in Scripture that this was written by an intellect that so transcends the human intellect as to be seemingly infinite and, as it turns out, actually infinite. And so if you can build up that argument about the nature of Scripture, then you can provide some substantive proof to the unbeliever as to why he should believe Scripture. But it is the exact opposite of the argument that a Christian should use when approaching another Christian. And I, again, wish more Christians would recognize that because it would lead to better arguments. You don't walk up to an unbeliever and beat him with the Bible. You first have to prove why the Bible should mean anything to him. As, and on the other hand, you don't walk up to a Christian and try to prove why he should believe the Bible. You point to him, you're a Christian, you have to believe the Bible. Yeah, that, that distinction makes sense. Uh, I was talking to Hans actually um, about a week ago, and we were we were sort of discussing the show, and one of the things that came up was the Bible as it is compared to what the Bible could have been. And I am absolutely not familiar with the arguments about this and some of the possible theories as to what became the Bible, but I have read some of the Bible. I'm working on the rest of it. It's difficult for me to understand it, to be honest, because of the language and the the translations therein. But there are several books in the Bible that compose the Bible. And there are people that make the case or argue that there were other books that were left out of the Bible. And Hans was telling me something about the Gnostic Bibles. I don't know much about them, but someone also told me about the book of Mary. Um, what is the Bible? How do we know it is the word of God versus these other books? And who decided to make the Bible the way it is? I assume it was people, but I mean, you could not, not the writing itself, but just the compilation of it. That that's sort of what I'm trying to understand. Like how, how did the Bible come about and how do we know it? this is the authentic, correct, complete version versus the other stuff that some people have said should be part of it, but is not. This is one of those where, just as I 
said in the argument about scripture, it depends on whether someone believes or doesn't believe. So for a believer, I'm going to obviously point to you have the indwelling of the spirit. The spirit is going to testify to the truth of scripture. You should be able to recognize scripture when you read it. But the more involved argument is on the other side. Why should an unbeliever care about scripture or why should an unbeliever consider these particular books to be scripture? Because, yes, they were compiled and printed by men. They were written by men with the inspiration of the spirit, of course, that is the belief of Christians. But how do we know that the Bible as it exists today is the Bible? As a preliminary matter, I would point out that an artifact exists that is the Bible in its completion, in its perfect form. And the reason we know that exists is because it was written. And the reason that is because an author is the one who determines his body of work. So for instance, all of the things that I have written are part of the corpus of my work because I wrote them. If I had an editor come in and God help that person if he ever exists, but if I had an editor come in and take everything I've ever written and produce some number of volumes with that, he did not create the body of work. He produced the version that would be printed, the version that would be available, but I created the work. And the work is mine because I created it. And so with scripture, there are a set number of books that exist because God inspired them to be written. And so they exist because of the authorship, not because men chose them. That answers the question of whether or not the artifact itself exists in some state, which is notably what Christians, more educated Christians anyway, advance, is that the scriptures are free from error in the original autographs. We obviously don't say that there are no scribal deletions or insertions. We know that there are some of those over time. The contention is that God has preserved the doctrinal, the dogmatic, the theological content not necessarily that every single number is entirely perfectly accurate because scribes sneeze sometimes. But the question of how do we know these books are the ones that should be included gets into a lot of the textual criticism, not in the negative modernist sense, but more the, the proper sense of the field as it was originally constructed. And also, if you read scripture, and look at scripture and pay careful attention, you can see all of the references forward and back in time, including references that would not have been possible for a human being to manage. The sheer number of references, the volume of references between and among the books of scripture shows that there is an animating intelligence behind the construction of these books. And there are other things as well. But I personally find that to be one of the more compelling arguments. And so you're making an investigation into the nature of the text itself to see if this is something that is beyond what a man could do, beyond what a number of men can do, which notably, if you have a number of men over many centuries, over thousands of years, it makes it even less likely to be able to produce something this coherent. But if you start to look at the nature of the documents, it becomes very obvious this was not something produced solely by human hands. There's something else behind it. It's sort of the, the positive foil 
to looking at our enemies and being able to see there's an animating intelligence behind them. That's an evil intelligence. But there was a driving intelligence behind the authorship, behind the formation of the scriptures. And because of the nature of that intelligence, it is necessarily God. I would just add that I would just add that the internal consistency is overwhelming. You know, there even someone who wants to sort of play gotcha games and ignore the theological arguments for explaining seeming contradictions, there just aren't that many of them. Which again, as Corey just said, if you look at the the volume of books, the volume of writing over the number of millennia from demonstrably different human authors, some at same time, some at different times, for all of it to fit together at all is just an impossibility. I mean, Corey and I agree on most things. If we were to try to write something, just the two of us, about stuff that we talk about all the time, we still would not be able to come up with 100 pages that was as internally consistent as the entirety of Scripture. Because at some point, it ceases to be about cleverness. And and as Corey said, it can only possibly be supernatural. And that's also the case with the preservation of the text throughout history. The when you look at the variations in the manuscripts, where you look at places where, you know, one manuscript from this time or this region says one thing and it's said very slightly different in a different place, it's virtually never the case that it actually changes doctrine. And personally, I, when I look at the way God has worked in space and time. You know, for example, we have the the four Gospels all describing the same story, and three of them are called the synoptics, where they're basically retelling more or less the same events. You know, they, they don't all say all of them, but you have either three or four books covering the entirety of Jesus' earthly ministry, which is 33 years. They all describe things in slightly different ways. For someone who wants to be, you know, a, a Reddit atheist and play gotcha games, they'll say, well, which one is real? I think that it's very plain. They're all real. So when you have different ways of describing something, it, it's like you have a, a physical object and you shine light on it in a dim room from different orientations. You're going to see different parts of it just depending on where the light and the shadow is cast. The synopticos work that way internally. And I see exactly the same sort of pattern play out when you look at the minor textual variations among the manuscripts. I've never dug into that much because what little I've looked at has never concerned me. You know, again, this is a, I'm blessed to have been raised Christian, so I trust what I received in faith. And then whenever I go, you know, run down one of these things, when someone says, you know, oh, well, Luther deleted all those books and blah, blah, blah. When I go look at the arguments on both sides of it, I've never in my life had come away from one of those feeling less confident in what I just sort of naturally assumed based on what I had received from my teachers. And that simultaneously gives me confidence in what I was, the faith I was raised in and that God is sort of, you know, guarding his faithful as we receive these things. And that, you know, what I'm working with is, is real. And I, you know, again, as Corey said, you know, there, there's one argument you make to a believer and another you make to an unbeliever. I'm thankful to be on the believing side of this, but at the same time, never in my life have I felt like I'm coping. 
And that's one of the only things that, you know, typically someone who is antagonistic towards faith as a predicate will say, like, it's just cope. I'll freely acknowledge that's possible. It is conceivable that I've been living my entire life coping, but I'm pretty good in all other situations at not doing that. And there's never been a hit of it whenever I'm looking at these things. I've always had the opposite experience. I see some question, like, okay, I take that question seriously. If someone says there's a mistake in the Bible, I want to know what they're talking about. And it's not that's going to keep me up at night. It's not that I stop believing in God or think he made a mistake, but I'm curious to see what what's the fight over. There's something interesting happening. And what I've always found is that sometimes God does things in more than one way, and they're all simultaneously true. You know, Jesus is fully God and fully man. If I say that something is 100% something, you're naturally going to assume that it can't be 100% something else. God works that way sometimes. I'm not comparing the, the textual variance to the hypostatic union, but when God acts in space and time, weird things happen sometimes. And it's never undermined my faith to look at those because they always add up. I was recommended to, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. I was just going to add a quick point that I would personally be much more worried if someone told me that I was worshiping a God that I could completely understand because that wouldn't be God. <laughs> no, that, that's, that's, that's a good argument. Um, someone uh, recommended to me that when I finish the Bible at some point, I pay particular attention to revelations and I, because I haven't finished the Bible, I don't know what is in that, but I can assume it's something about the, uh, the end of our story. And I guess I would just ask you gentlemen, what signs do you look for to indicate to you we might be coming to an end, if, if at all? I'm going to let you take that one to start. <laughs> Since my, my last username was Eschatologi. <laughs> I revelation is you know we were talking earlier about the interlinearity of scripture all, all the cross references and stuff there you can you can just google like cross reference uh, bible diagram and you'll find these huge images that sh basically the the timeline like the x axis is books of the bible and then there are lines between the places where one part of the Bible correlates to another, references another. And it's it's impossibly complicated. And so Revelation is, a, I think, one of the best examples of that. The, the amount of references to other places in the Bible in Revelation is just overwhelming. The, the knowledge of the author as he was writing it down it's beyond what a human being could do to, to have such perfect knowledge just of, of the, the sheer scope of everything else is, is phenomenal. As you're reading it, I, one of the, well, it's, it's self-explanatory in the sense that it's, it's John describing a vision that was given to him by God. So the entire thing is a vision. The entire thing is prophecy. It's, it's a dream. It's, it's symbolic language. And so when, human beings are trying to look at prophecies, at, at things that God gives us at one point in time, and then they are fully revealed at a later point in time. Absent a prophet to translate the prophecy, to explain the prophecy, 
it's impossible for us to have perfect foreknowledge of what that's going to look like. So what I mean is that as you read Revelation and, you know, even the other prophecies are they're prophecies of the end times also in the New Testament for things that we believe have not yet come to pass. At least some do. That's one of the debates in, in Christendom, especially more recently around when and how are certain prophecies fulfilled. Until such time as a prophecy has been fulfilled, and we know this from from the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, for example, there are hundreds of prophecies of the Messiah that were fulfilled in Jesus' day. However, and so each of them, as Jesus was living his life, performing his miracles, all the things that he did from his birth to his death to his resurrection, all of them were prophesied. And yet at the same time, until he had fulfilled them, no one who had the Old Testament would have been able to actually lay out what his life was going to look like. So the prophecies were bits and pieces, and some of them were imagery. And in the rearview mirror, you're like, yes, clearly this was this was fulfilled as prophecy. But it wasn't foreknowledge in the sense that, you know, I could tell you, you know, next Tuesday the sun is going to rise at this particular point in the sky. I can have foreknowledge and I can predict based on calculations. Prophecies don't work that way. Prophecy is something that's fundamentally unknowable. And so in Revelation, the the vision language that's given until it happens, we're not going to know what it's actually going to look like because John himself, as he's narrating these things, is describing uh, there are kind of three parts to it. And he sort of narrates the same almost sequence of events in three different ways. And that's something else that happens elsewhere in Scripture with with other prophecies, not certainly to the same degree. But I think it it is a fundamentally important question for Christians today to to take seriously that God has given us prophecy that has not yet been fulfilled. I mean, if nothing else, you know, there's there's debate over how much of the prophecies were fulfilled with the destruction of the temple and you know, et cetera. Even if someone holds those views, which neither Corey nor I do, it is still the case that Jesus has not returned yet. The world has not ended yet. We can take that one as a freebie. That is an unfulfilled prophecy. So leading up to it, we should be looking for it. And that's something that Jesus said in his own in his own preaching and is also repeated in Revelation. These signs of the end times are being given as a warning and also as comfort. And one of the things that's happened throughout Christian history, throughout church history, is that people have tried to correlate the the imagery, the visions to specific historic events in anticipation or to say it's happening right now. And therefore, we change the way we're living. And, you know, we sell our stuff and go up on the on a hilltop and look up in the sky. I don't think that that is the correct approach, and it's been proven wrong every time. So obviously, it's not a good idea. The flip side is that we should still have in our hearts the belief that these things will come to pass. And I think something that's missing from a lot of Christian life today, I think it, I think it's become kind of weak in a lot of Lutheran theology today, is basically everyone says, well, Jesus could come back tomorrow. And that kind of implies that Jesus almost might never come back. Because if you actually look at the specifics that are prophesied, some of them clearly haven't happened. I can't tell you, you know, what chapter and verse in Revelation is actually going to look like, but I can tell you that nothing remotely like that has happened yet. And 
they're prophecies, they're real things, but they're visions. So without a prophet, we don't know what it's going to look like. And for me, I take that as comfort to just have the reminders. You know, there's there's a passage talking about there will be wars and rumors of wars and that these will be signs of the end times. Well, what time in human history have there not been wars and rumors of wars? And I think that's a good example because it's not a it's not a cheap prophecy. It's not, well, you know, it's a gimme. That's kind of the, you know, the center square in your bingo card. God is telling us there will be signs in every generation. There will be indications that you should expect me to arrive. And that's that's a big part of Jesus preaching. He preaches a lot about his return and about how his return will be like a thief in the night. And many of the parables have to do with those who are not taking his return seriously and are not, you know, tending to their faith. They're not tending to all the duties that they have in this life. What shouldn't happen for Christians is to try to treat it as a puzzle. Like to, you get the morning newspaper, which doesn't exist anymore. You're like you get your timeline in the morning and you try to find the the verse in Revelation that's being fulfilled by whatever the news is. That's a that's a foolish approach. I, I don't I don't think that's healthy. However, at the same time, I believe that as these things are fulfilled in the future, I think some of them may be beginning to happen now. We'll see. You know, there's one of the clearest examples, the one of the functions of the mark of the beast is that it will be necessary for someone to buy and sell anything. This is something that's it's a huge part of discourse today. Like it's part of the WEF 2030 agenda to basically do away with cash and make all transactions, you know, whether it's on the blockchain or not, they want to move everything to digital, which will mean that everything will be gated by you having permission to buy and sell. That is simultaneously something that is a public policy goal of the global governance crowd. And it's a prophecy and revelation. Do I think that the WEF 2030 plans are a fulfillment of revelation? No. Do I think they could be? Absolutely. And I think that if they are, I think we're going to figure it out <laughs> in this decade. And if they are, I sh we should take it seriously. And if they're not, we should still believe that that will be fulfilled one day. So it's it's a constant reminder to live in the faith and to look forward to Christ's return. That's part of the creeds. And But it's not a puzzle. It's not something that should be a source of worry. It should be a source of comfort that because part of Revelation is that no matter how bad things get, God will cut those days short for the sake of the elect. Because one, one of the things is prophesied is that it will get really bad. The church will effectively go away. All the good things will effectively go away. There will still be a remnant of believers. But if God doesn't cut the days short and literally return in time, everyone would fall away. That, that's what is prophesied. And it, Personally, I think we're on that trajectory in our lifetimes. I'm not hinging anything on it. I mean, and I don't think that's an article of faith. I do think that it is, I think it, it's a, question, a Christian question. It's one that Christians have always had. It's It's been a belief in many Christian lifetimes for 2,000 years that Jesus is coming back. And that's that's the way God wants it. So it's not foolishness for us to believe in something that's not fulfilled in our lifetime, because that's been the entire history of the church. You know, for 4,000 years, there are these prophecies of Jesus coming, and everyone anticipated the Messiah. When he finally came and the prophecies were fulfilled, everyone's like, yep, this baby is is the Messiah. That will happen again on the last day. And whether it's in our lifetimes or in the future, 
we can have certain confidence that it will happen because God promised it. When it comes to Revelation, I generally make two points. My first point is that Revelation, when considered to be a puzzle, is generally a heretic factory. And so I would advise people who are prone to trying to treat books of Scripture as a puzzle to actually avoid Revelation. I'm not saying you shouldn't ever read it. I'm saying try to suppress that natural tendency to look for weird little puzzles everywhere to solve them. That's a bad tendency that some men have, and particularly historically it has produced some unfortunate results. Literally men selling everything and going and waiting on a mountaintop and nothing happening. But the second point that I generally make is for those who think that they have to search Scripture to find out exactly when the end times are coming. First, there's a minor point that Scripture says no man knows the day. But second, we're all a several heartbeats or a burst blood vessel or an accident of some kind away from the judgment. For each and every one of us, the end times are not very far away. And so whether or not Christ is coming back tomorrow or in a week or in 10 years, for each of us, the clock is ticking down and there aren't very many days left on it. Even if some of those listening are particularly young and say you live to 100, okay, so that's 80 years. That's the blink of an eye in the grand scheme of things. And so searching scripture to try and figure out when exactly the end is, is exactly the wrong thing to do. What you should do as a Christian is you read through Scripture and find the way to live your life. You don't find the way to plan for the exact time that Christ is going to return. You're doing it wrong if you try to do that. Live your life how you are supposed to, in line with what God has told us to do. He's given you a life. He's counted out. He has allotted the number of your days. Use them wisely and searching for little nuances or little connections between numbers in Revelation is probably not a wise use of your life. And so for someone who's coming to Scripture as a first read through Scripture or a second, third, a tenth read through Scripture, I would definitely advise focusing on Genesis, the wisdom literature, which is, say, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Psalms, Job, and then Romans. Those are the books on which to focus. Focus on the things that teach the history and the core of the faith and wisdom, of course, for the wisdom literature. These are important. I'm not saying the rest of Scripture isn't important. I'm just saying people can tend to get lost in the weeds and obsess over things that are not necessarily core parts of the faith. That sounded like mostly Old Testament. I could be wrong, but... Most of that was Old Testament, except for Romans, yes. Okay. Romans is a particular favorite amongst Lutherans and really amongst Protestants generally. It lays out very clearly the doctrine of the faith and what is justification, what is salvation, what what are these things, what are the mm -hmm. actual moving parts of the faith. And Romans is basically a textbook on what Christianity is. Well, it sounds like the fight against good and evil starts with yourself. And perhaps that's, as uh, mere mortals, what we should always remember. 
Yeah, that was the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, if you've in the Gospels, the very first thing that happens, he's baptized and he immediately goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Now, the difference is that when Jesus, the perfect God and perfect man, battled Satan's temptations in the desert, he also did it perfectly. We do not have the power to do that. We completely lack the ability to resist Satan on our own. Through the gift of faith, God gives us the ability to resist the devil's wiles. But more importantly, he tells us what that's going to look like. Because regardless of willpower or strength of faith or anything else, purely as an intellectual exercise, if you are educated in here's what is good and godly, which is why Corey pointed to the wisdom literature, and here's what evil looks like, and there's plenty of that in wisdom literature too, and then frankly the rest of the Bible, like here's a list of, of good properties and people, and here's a list of bad properties and people. And it's stuff that everybody knows. You, For most of it, you don't need to be a Christian to know, yeah, that's bad news. It's also important that, you know, these things are specifically enumerated, so there's no doubt. And one of the things you asked about earlier, I don't remember exactly the question, but I think we don't treat Scripture as as just a rote rule book where, you know, it's it's not like the Constitution or some body of laws where here's all the stuff that's permitted or forbidden and then everything else is up for grabs. It's there to impart faith and to inform believers and to be a rule and a guide for everyone to measure whatever is going on in their lives or in the world against. And if it serves that function perfectly. Well, if there's no more to discuss at the moment, I just wanted to thank both of you again for coming on and to encourage anyone who is not familiar with their podcast to check it out. I highly recommend it. I've listened to a lion's share of what they've put out and it's always worth the time. So thanks again. And, uh, hopefully there'll be more coming. Thank you for having us on. Thank Yep, thank you. It was very enjoyable. And uh, like I said, I, there's a there's definitely a big overlap in our audiences. I will say, you know, like Corey was saying earlier, we we've talked about Christian stuff when we've come on your show. A lot of what we talk about on our show, although it's rooted in faith, as you've heard, it's it's not. Sometimes it's a Bible study, but a lot of times it's we're trying to fill in the gaps for, especially for young men for young men in the West who are faced with a world that's on fire. We want there to be a scriptural foundation for men to be able to live good lives, which is to say godly lives. And some men who want to be good, we hope that all of them will, will come to find that that is in fact godly and that that is found in scripture. But a lot of things that we talk about are not just Bible stuff. Like I said, the last episode we did was on uh, normalcy bias. On you know, we we talked about uh, Admiral Stockdale's experience in Vietnam being tortured and surviving that. There's a lot of stuff that we go through in our lives. We did an episode a few weeks ago about uh, kind of the dating scene for for young men and courtship and how to find a good wife and to inform fathers. Here's what your your daughters and your sons are facing. So. Mm. It, it's kind of a random grab bag, but it's all oriented around. We want to make sure that there's a Christian voice 
in all of these discussions, because there's a lot more to talk about than the Bible, but the Bible has something to inform it, even if it's not just about it. So I, I hope that some more folks will check it out. I think that many of you will actually enjoy it, even if you're not Christians. Uh, we've, I can tell you, and I'm, I'm thankful for this, and it's also simultaneously uh, humbling and, and surprising how many guys we get to just sort of randomly come across it who don't have necessarily have a church background. They start listening and within a matter of weeks, they've joined a church <laughs> and they DM us frequently asking for recommendations, like just out of the blue. And again, like a lot of our episodes are not even that much about the Bible, but there's, there's something there that is animating men to want to, to live godly lives. And they, they hear from us and what they conclude correctly from scripture. You're going to find that in a church. So, you know, we do a lot of work to try to help guys find good congregations wherever they are. Um, and I'm, I'm thankful for that fruit because that's not, it's not that we're clever convincing. It's that we're, we're using the words that God uses and he's using it for good things. If it were just us, I don't think that that sort of thing would be happening. So I'm very, I'm thankful for it. And I hope that we can continue to do that as long as, long as God lets us. Vanity is definitely my favorite sin. Kevin, it's so basic. Self-love, the all-natural opiate. You know, it's not that you didn't care for Mary Ann, Kevin. It's just that you were a little bit more involved with someone else. Yourself. I did it all. I let him go. Ah, oh, don't be too hard on yourself, Kevin. You wanted something more, believe me. I left her behind and just kept going. You cannot keep punishing yourself, Kevin. It's awesome how far you've come. I didn't make it easy. Couldn't. Not for you. Or your sister. half-sister to be exact. Surprise. Some scene. Huh, Kevin? Don't let him scare you, eh? Kevin, I've had so many children. I've had so many disappointments. Mistake after mistake. And then there's you. The two of you. What do you want from me? I want you to be yourself. You know, I'll tell you, boy, guilt is like a bag of fucking bricks. All you gotta do, set it down. Hey, I know what you're going through. I've been there. Just come here. Come here. Yeah, let it go. Yeah. I, I can't do that. Who are you carrying all those bricks for, anyway? God? Is that it? God? Well, I tell you, let me give you a little inside information about God. God likes to watch. He's a prankster. Think about it. He gives man instincts. He gives you this extraordinary gift, and then what does he do? I swear, for his own amusement, his own private cosmic gag reel. 
He sets the rules in opposition. It's the goof of all time. Look, but don't touch. Touch, but don't taste. Taste, don't swallow. <laughs> and while you're jumping from one foot to the next, what is he doing? He's laughing his sick fucking ass off. He's a tight ass. He's a sadist. He's an absentee landlord. Worship that never. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, is that it? Why not? I'm here on the ground with my nose in it since the whole thing began. I've nurtured every sensation man has been inspired to have. I cared about what he wanted, and I never judged him. Why? Because I never rejected him, in spite of all his imperfections. I'm a fan of man! I'm a humanist. Maybe the last humanist. Who, in their right mind, Kevin, could possibly deny the 20th century was entirely mine? All of it, Kevin! All of it. Mine. I'm peeking, Kevin. It's my time now. It's our time.